0: Well, I'm uh, I'm always happy to be back in my home church, and I'm in the home stretch of seminary now. So, uh, always excited to preach because I am in the mode where I'm just taking in so much more than I'm getting to use. Uh, so it's good to be here uh, for many, many reasons. I would invite you uh, to open your Bibles to page 844 and leave them open because uh, you guys have been moving through a series on Luke, and um, I don't want to call anyone out, so, so I have to be careful about how I do this. So I do not if you guys heard the story of uh, the pastor who one week, he told uh, his congregation, he said, okay, next week we're doing a sermon on Mark chapter 17, so I need everyone to go spend their week reading 17, just read it every day, like really, really take it in, and make sure you know it, because we're going we're to dive in deep next week. And they came back, and the next week he said, okay, I need everyone to raise their hand to show me that you read Mark 17, and about half the congregation raised their hand. And he said, Mark has 16 chapters. Now I'm going to tell you my sermon about lying. So I'm not trying to do that because I know we don't have time to preach all of Luke this summer. So you're, you're given readings throughout the week. And so I'm going to be referencing some of the things that you uh, would have been reading this week, but there's no pressure, no guilt if you weren't able to. Uh, but we're just going to be able to connect some things. That's why it's important to leave your your Bibles out. So we've got a, a long reading, which I'll go ahead and and start now. Uh, So this is Luke, chapter 10, page 844, 1 to 24. It says, After this the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if, anyone who, uh, and, if in, and if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, Eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you that on the day, on that day it will be more tolerable in Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Corazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But at the judgment, it will be more tolerable in Tyre and Sidon than it is for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects me Uh, And whoever rejects me... uh, Let me start over. There's a lot of whoever's there. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority... To tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At the same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and desired to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we just thank you for your word this morning. Just pray that you would uh, speak through me, speak to us through it. Um, that Not only that we would uh, listen, but we would have ears to hear, that we would allow it to shape our hearts and our minds, and uh, that you would continue to transform us, and that, and that you would grant us the joy that we're reading about in this text. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right. So, Luke, so far... Uh, Dennis did a, a wonderful job last week. I just listened to it online. And uh, he, he captured the spirit of Luke, the Gentile writer. He's writing about the inclusive nature of the kingdom. Jesus is uh, is reaching out to, to women in a way that no rabbi has ever done. And we're seeing him reach new people groups all the time. And this week is no exception. But in Luke 1 through 9, the focus of the, the text is answering one question. And it's who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then you get the transfiguration and you find out very clearly who, who Jesus is. And so the question then shifts from, okay, if this is God, then how should we live? How, how does that affect what we're supposed to be doing? Uh, and the simple answer is that we should be disciples. The next question then is, what does it mean to be a disciple? And that's what the text begins to answer. So this week, it, the basic thing it's saying is that what it means to be a disciple is to be a messenger, to be a courier of the kingdom. And actually, in the the very next section that finishes where we leave off today, it says it's to be a good neighbor. It's a good Samaritan. Um, So that question is going to be answered as we go through, but um, we've got a lot of text here. I I told the first service, in seminary, they give me three verses to preach in 30 minutes, which is 10 minutes per verse. And if I do that today, I'm going to contradict the message of joy, which I've been charged to give you. So we're not going to do 240 minutes. Um, It's math. They didn't teach me that. Um, so let's let's go ahead and start. We're going to start. Uh, we're actually going to keep uh, the structure that, that the translation has here. So these headers are actually pretty helpful. Verses one through twelve. Jesus sends out the seventy or the seventy-two, depending on your translation. Uh, I wrote my sermon with uh, seventy-two, but I now see that it's seventy in your pew Bibles. And so what's happening here is a it's a really uh, familiar concept if you're reading the Bible. It starts. Uh, most noticeably in Genesis 12, you could, you could argue it begins before then, but Jesus is saying, uh, God is saying, Jesus is saying here, like, I've, I've blessed you so that you can go be a blessing. You've received a blessing, not so that you can just sit around and be blessed, but so that you can be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless the many by blessing the few. And so Jesus is pulling people in, but he's constantly releasing them and sending them. So as soon as he pulls them in, send out. You're blessed, now go be a blessing. And so chapter 9 uh, ends with um, this verse that says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. And if you don't believe him, read the next verses. Go, be on your way. This, I mean, this, this, the transitions here are, are very masterful. Uh, Luke's a very, very, very gifted writer, which we've touched on a lot in this series already. But he's, he's sending them immediately. He brings them in and he sends them. And they're sent with the purpose of carrying a message they're to be bringing peace, they're to be bringing healing, and and they're supposed to carry this message that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, it's interesting to me, um, may not be to anyone else, but it's interesting to me that the word they use to translate salvation also, it has a wide range of meaning uh, in in the New Testament language, and, and it can mean everything from salvation to health and well-being and wholeness. And that's actually the salvation that, that Luke is painting here. It's not it's not merely uh, salvation, but he's also bringing restoration and healing to everything, every aspect of life. And he, he emphasizes again and again, all things is the scope of his salvation. And so they carry this message: the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, and it's important to note that they are primarily messengers. They're not they're not arguers. They're not sophists. They're not debaters. Uh, there are times and places for all those things, but this is what he's sending them out with. He's saying, messengers. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. That means, you know, if you got a, a, you know, some weeds in there, don't worry about that right now. Just keep going. There's so much to be harvested. Just go. And, and so that's what he sends them out with. And so I think this is, this is an interesting thing. And I think if you're an original reader, even if you're not an original reader, I'm not from the first century. Little known fact. Um, it's good to know people are listening. Uh, I'm not from the first century, but. Even as I read the Gospel of Luke, you're to be marveling at the things Jesus is doing throughout. And then you have to wonder why after the transfiguration, after it's revealed to the disciples who he is, he's the Son of God living in flesh, he's here on earth doing ministry, he then outsources his ministry. Why would he do that? This is God in the flesh, and he's giving these responsibilities away. And I think my my favorite way to illustrate this which is largely influenced by my wife's choice of audiobook on the ride here. Um, But do we have any fans or uh, people familiar with Harry Potter? Yeah, I want to see hands because, okay. This is actually fewer than the first service, which I didn't expect. That's okay. Um, So I'm going to have a a pretty significant spoiler in here, but they came out like 20 years ago, so I'm not... It's not an apology, I'm just explaining. That Put earmuffs on if you don't want to... But my favorite character in the series is Albus Dumbledore. He's the headmaster of Harry's school. It's a boarding school. They're there year-round. He's this wonderful uh, teacher and mentor. And when you read the books the first time, they go to school when they're like 11 or 12 years old. And at the end of the first book, little 11- or 12-year-old Harry confronts the darkest wizard of all time. And you're like, how negligent is Albus Dumbledore that he's letting 11 and 12 year olds do this. And the next book, it happens again. And you keep getting these hints that it's almost like Dumbledore's arranged it this way. He's allowing these things to happen. And, you know, he, he lets them come very near danger, but, uh, but never lets them enter true, true harm. And then it, it happens again in book four and again in book five. And you just wonder, you know, if Albus Dumbledore is the greatest living wizard, why in the world is he outsourcing this to children? Why is he letting children? Do the significant work, and the answer is because at the end of Book Six, Dumbledore dies, and there's still Book Seven, and the work needs to be done, but Dumbledore is gone. We are in the Book Seven of of the Bible. Jesus has ascended to heaven, but the work He was doing still needs to be done, and so that's what He's offering. He's offering on-the-job training, and it's and it's more than just on-the-job training. I mean, these aren't just chores we're being given, and that's what I would expect when I. When I read about this kingdom and you see Jesus doing what he's doing and you say, you know, you should be saying, you know, I want to be doing, I want to participate. I'm not fit to like sweep the floors in the kingdom here. But what's the work he's giving? He's giving his work. We're giving life-changing, world-shaping, unfathomable responsibility in the kingdom. And so this changes our question of duty. You know, we approach the Bible. And we, a lot of us say, I say, okay, what what must I do? Jesus, what do I have to do? You know, what what are you assigning me this week? Um, and our a passage like this makes me realize that's the wrong question. The question is, what do I get to do? Because you would have to be a crazy person to be reading Luke's gospel for the first nine chapters and say, mm, no, I don't really like what's going on here. All this all this healing, all this restoration. Uh, uniting families and communities, restoring people. No, I don't like that. You should be excited about what's happening here and you should be wanting to help in whatever way you can and what's more significant than that work that Jesus himself is actually doing. This is incredible responsibility. It's actually more than I would have trusted me with, but uh, that's what we see Jesus doing. And so it's, it's on-the-job training for these 70 and they're given out, they're, they're sent out. And then we approach verses 13 to 16 which may seem like an odd jump for some of us. Uh, but we have to just read this. This is a continuous narrative. This is Luke arranged it this way on purpose. This is woes to unrepentant cities. And I don't think most of us spend our weeks issuing woes. So I think it's worth talking about what a woe is for just a second. Because I think of woe, when we read it, we think fire and brimstone, understandably so. We think uh, all of these terrible things and uh, I think it's important to recognize that a woe is not a curse. It's a, it's, a, it's a cry, it's a distress, it's an empathy. It's actually extreme emotional engagement, not emotional detachment. And I think that's how we read woes, is emotionally detached. You know, you rejected this, you're, you're dead to me. Woe to you. That's not what's happening. He's so deeply invested. He's saying, woe to you, I, you know, I, I pity you, I, I'm sorry for you. Here's what's, Here's the trajectory you're on. And we've preached to you and you're just not hearing it. And so he says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, this is an interesting woe because these are uh, primarily Jewish cities. So the Messiah of the Jews issuing woes to Jewish cities. Not quite what you would expect. And then he compares them to well-known pagan cities and and puts the light favorably in the pagan cities. Tyre and Sidon. Sidon, um, I, I believe it was Sidon. I was reading the some archaeological article, and they said the entryway to the city was covered with pagan gods. So this is, this is the city that Jesus is saying, Jewish city, you should be more like them. Because if I said this to them, they would listen. And what's, what's fascinating, if you don't believe him, so what he's saying is, you know, these cities have witnessed miracles. You Jewish cities have witnessed miracles, and you still don't believe. And if you don't believe me, just flip back one page to Luke chapter 9, verse 10, the feeding of the five thousand. Where was that? Does anyone have their Bible out? Where was the feeding of the five thousand? It's Bethsaida. He just fed five thousand there, right outside the city, and they don't believe. So chapter ten comes the woe. And see what Luke does. This is you have to. You should try that one week this summer. Just try to read the Gospel of Luke in one sitting. Just watch how it all hangs together. In addition to what you're doing, just take an hour and read it in one sitting. Or listen to the, you know, an audio Bible. Um, it's, it's so worth your time to hear how it all hangs together. So he compares them to these pagan cities. And one of the things we learn, that we're going to come back to this when he, we get to Jesus' reflection at the end, which is just one thing we learn along the way that we also learn in the Gospel of John, is that miracles don't make believers. Miracles serve a purpose in the kingdom, but they do not change your heart. It's not necessarily the way it works. And so it's interesting then that the 70 return rejoicing in the miracles that they perform. We go to verses 17 to 20, and they say, The disciples, re- or the 70 return with a joy. And you're like, Well, that's great. This is a sermon about joy. They return with joy. But Jesus actually says, No, you're rejoicing in the wrong thing. So what they're celebrating is that they, they celebrate that even the demons submit to us in your name. And so Jesus is saying, You know, I have some some reservations here. I think you're you're celebrating too little and too much, actually, at the same time. So you're celebrating your power. You're celebrating your abilities. That's what's being celebrated here. And so there's this quote I have from uh, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory that I think sums up the disciples' problem pretty well here. He says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy... Is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is being meant by the offer of holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And that's what we see in the disciples here. They're far too easily pleased. Once you see what Jesus is about to say, you're like, you guys are playing in the mud. You don't even see what's in front of you. you don't, you're, not, you're joyful about the wrong things, and that's not right joy. So Jesus wants you to be joyful, but he wants you to be joyful about the right things. And so this may seem like an odd sentence that comes up next year. This is verse 17. So let's just read this passage here so you can hear the flow of it and hear how it might seem disruptive to some people. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, so this is in reply, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he's basically saying, Look, of course my gospel has power. I know it has power. Don't come back and tell me that. I, I know what it can do. I've been doing it for nine chapters already. Jesus is not impressed by that. That's not what you should take joy in. But what he says you should take joy in is the interesting thing. He says, you know, snakes and scorpions are well-known signs of evil. He's saying your power over evil. But Still, that's not what you should take joy in. Instead, you're to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he says, I don't like what's driving your ministry. You can do really good ministry with really poor motivation. And that's what Jesus is trying to root out here. He said and this is a, actually a really dangerous trajectory that they' are on, and so I think we have to do a little bit of a, just a little bit of cultural research to understand why the heaven your names being written in heaven is so significant and uh, it comes down to, to the the fact that uh, in the in the ancient world, only a select few would have their names written down as citizens of a town. There is a distinction between a resident and a citizen, and typically the citizen title having your name written down meant that it was a status of nobility. You were a noble in the town. You have a name. You have significance. You have a meaning. That's what it means to have your name written down. And so he's saying your name, your nobility, your inheritance, your everything, your identity is actually written down in heaven. That's what should give you joy. You don't earn your status by doing miraculous things, doing wonderful things, making converts. You, your status is given to you. It's granted so that's why he says that. And so what he says to them, he says, you know, the problem is you're resting in your power to feel like a somebody. You're getting your sense of being a somebody, being important by your power, by your ability. And he says, ultimately, that will lead to the same thing that made Satan fall, which is pride. Now his response makes a little more sense. He says, they say, you know, come back rejoicing. He says, you don't want to rejoice in that. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So people who rejoice uh, in their power, their performance, or their ministry, so so here's the failure of a performance-based identity. It leads to two places, and neither of them are good. In one case, you'll be really successful. You'll say, I'm I'm going to make a lot of converts, and you do make a lot of converts. What does that do? That builds up pride. And eventually, uh, you start seeing people as trophies rather than people. They're not they're not God's children, they're not participants in the kingdom, they're trophies. I have to earn more because my identity is an evangelist and i I'm, I convert a lot of people where I'm in, I'm great at, you know, apologetics and I can I can argue anyone in the faith or uh, you know any number of things or I am you know I have a good prayer man. Anything. Any accomplishment that you hang your hat on can lead to pride if you're really good at it. Or it can lead to despair if you're not good at it. So if you're used to going out and doing street evangelism and you make 10 converts a week for 20 years and one week you make nine, guess what happened to your name, to your reputation, to how you see yourself, your value as a Christian, your value in the kingdom? It plummets. It's very fragile joy. It's very fleeting. And Jesus is trying to guard his followers against that. He's saying, that's great stuff. It's good stuff. I'm doing it. It's good things. But what you take joy in, what you rest your identity in, where you find your security, where your name, your significance is found, is given to you for free. So this is actually where, when I was first reading it, I thought, you know, I, this is a lot of verses. I need to end it like here. But Dennis gave me these extra ones. But now I see Dennis' wisdom. Because I saw it before this. But I've, I saw it again. I saw it anew. Because now we get to see Jesus rejoicing. We get to see what Jesus rejoices in. This is an interesting insight. So it says at that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. I've never prayed that. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest. I've never said thank you for hiding things from wise and intelligent people. And he says, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for that was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the, who the Son is except the Father, or the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So this may seem like a strange thing to say, and he, he says you know, even kings have wanted to see what, what you're showing these people, and they can't. And if you don't believe that, go back to chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Herod is wondering who Jesus is. He's seeing all of the things that are being done, but he can't see who Jesus is. And he's baffled by it. Um, And so what he's saying here is you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. And what he's really saying, and the proof of this is in the woes, he's saying people who are wise in their own eyes. People who have everything figured out. They've got... Their worldview is perfectly constructed. They know how everything works. Everything fits together. There's no room to learn or grow. Their paradigm is set. And when they hear the gospel, they don't have a framework for it. They can't receive it because it doesn't fit into what they already know, and they already know everything. The only people who can hear it are people who know that they're weak. They know they're not good, and they simply ask, Save me by your grace. That's all I can rest on. So that's who Jesus is saying, Thank you, Father. That, it, that you've revealed it to those who need it, those who know they need it. And so we take joy that the gospel is a free gift. It's not acquir- acquired from a position of privilege or power. And so the bottom line here is that if you rejoice in anything other than grace, it will disappoint you. It, it will lead to your own ends. Your, your ministry, your abilities, your power will become your idol. Your idol will become your shackles, and your shackles will, will take away your joy. And Jesus is saying, that's why you don't rest in those things. They're good gifts of God, but we, we the greatest gift from God is his grace. Our names are written. And so the idea here that, that should be becoming clear, and I, I, this is a strong way to state it, but I, I'm going to stand by it, is that when you see Luke's gospel, you see everything that Jesus is doing, you see that the world is being shaken and shifted and changed by his ministry, if you know about this and you're not sharing it with someone else, it's like you know, it's like you know the, the, uh, the, the treatment for cancer and you've decided to keep it to yourself or to your family. This is what's corrupting the world, what's breaking the world. Jesus is the solution for. His kingdom is the restoration, the reconciliation for all things on heaven and on earth. And so keeping this to yourself is unfathomable. That's why he's, he brings him in and he says, go. The harvest is plentiful. And the reason we have this joy is because we all can take the same joy. And this is, this is the radical nature of Jesus' gospel. We all share the same status before God. And it's that we are people saved by grace. Our abilities don't define us before God. Our powers don't define us before God. He's not impressed by those things. He gave us those things. He made us those things. Our grace gives us equal standing and we have equal ministry with one another before jesus and so the only real response to this is joy and it's true joy it's right joy it's righteous joy that jesus wants us to have and so we are messengers first part of this but we're messengers who are marked by the contents of our message we go with joy we bring the message with joy we spread joy because our news is hope it's salvation it's restoration it's reconciliation it's redemption the only natural response to this is joy and so it's funny because People don't think of me as a joyful person. I am joyful. I'm just not expressive or emotional. And I told my in-laws, they asked what I was preaching on. I said joy, and they started laughing. So I was like, well, I can spread joy one way or the other. Um, but I am a joyful person. But as I'm reading this, I feel the conviction of it. And so the, the question I have to ask myself, the question we all have to ask ourselves, ask ourselves is, does your life reflect the contents of your message? Are you sharing the gospel of joy from a posture of joy? Is is your personality, is your method, is your message consistent with your life? And that's the challenge. And and then the second challenge is, are you rejoicing in the right things? Jesus cares about, joy is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. Rejoicing in the right thing is what Jesus wants for us. So... Uh, as you continue to move through through Luke, you see the Good Samaritan in the next section. You see, okay, so we're, we're messengers. That's what it means to be a disciple. We're neighbors, and we're moving with joy through all of this. So you really, really have to ask yourself continually, not just in this chapter, but as you go through the gospel, am I a disciple? Am I a messenger? Am I a good neighbor? Am I a loving neighbor? And am I marked by joy? Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we do thank you that you reveal these things to those who are weak, those who cannot reach God, cannot reach heaven on our own. We are, we know our standing. We know that we're weak. We know that we don't have the abilities, the power to transform this world in the way that it needs to be done. So we rest in your grace. And because we fall back on your grace, you lead us to joy. And we just pray that this joy, uh, you would fill us with it and that we would be contagious with it, that we would have this joy, but not have it just for ourselves, that we would be conduits of joy, we would spread joy, we would spread peace, Uh, that we would be uh, makers of peace and spreaders of joy uh, everywhere we go. We just thank you for your word. We just pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us and conform us uh, into the people that you would have us be. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.